This is a HeadGum Podcast. Professional welder Shayna Ford used VR training developed by ForgeFX to hone her skills as a welder. The more time that you spend practicing it, that's what separates a good welder from a great welder. VR training can help students like Shayna repeatedly practice specific skills. Virtual reality definitely helps because the more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Explore more stories like Shayna's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. Welcome to Factually. I'm Adam Conover. Thank you so much for joining me on the show again. You know, there's an alarming backlash against trans rights and, frankly, the existence of trans people at all in America today. Turns out bathroom laws were only the beginning. Now there are laws banning gender-affirming care for kids, requiring trans students to be misgendered, and even laws against drag shows in many places across this country. On top of that, there's a cottage industry of dumbass articles stoking the flames of the anti-trans freakout. And I think some of it comes from this perception that suddenly trans people are everywhere, that this is something new in our society. And I understand that to a certain extent. You know, 10 years ago, I had maybe met one or two trans people ever in my life. And now I have countless non-binary and trans friends who are living openly and who are thriving. And this is true across the country. The number of young people who identify as transgender has doubled in recent years. And today, 5% of people younger than 30 are trans. That is huge that so many people are out now. It is a generational shift. But the idea that being trans or gender nonconforming itself is something new that was just invented recently is false. See, we've been taught that the gender binary is natural. So we have this false idea that human culture and history has been based around that strict binary forever. But that is not the case at all. In so many places and times throughout history, humans have expressed gender concepts outside that binary. Take the Pacific island of Samoa, where there are four genders, or in India, where the hydras are acknowledged as a third gender with specific cultural and religious roles. These people are not new. They have been acknowledged in the historical record since the 8th century BC. And these are just two of the many examples throughout history that challenge the gender binary. But it can be hard to see those examples or fully understand them from the limited historical perspective and notion of gender that we have today. So to walk us through this, to help us open our minds to the possibilities of gender throughout history, we have an incredible guest on the show. I read their book a few months ago. It absolutely blew my mind. I know you're going to love this interview. But before we get to it, I want to remind you that if you want to support this show, you can do so on Patreon. Head to patreon.com slash Adam Conover. Five bucks a month gets you every episode of this podcast ad-free. Uh, we also have a lot of other great community perks as well. You can check them out. And if you love stand-up comedy, please come see me on tour. I'm headed to Portland, Maine, New York City. Uh, D.C., Chicago, uh, Atlanta, Nashville, Philadelphia, a bunch of other places as well. Head to adamconover.net for tickets and tour dates. And now 
Let's get to this week's guest. My guest today is Kit Hayam. They're a researcher and writer based in Leeds and the author of the incredible book, Before We Were Trans, A New History of Gender. Uh, I cannot be more honored to welcome Kit Hayam to the show. Kit, thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you so much for having me. It's a total pleasure to be here. I'm really thrilled to have you because, you know, we have a lot of authors on this show. Obviously, I hope people give me the grace to understand. I don't have time to read every book. But in this case, this is a book that I read before having you on the show. And then I was like, I have to have Kit on the show because I loved this book so much. Um, It's called uh, Before We Were Trans. uh, And I think that, you know, our contemporary conversation about trans issues, about all gender nonconforming issues is so much wrapped up in, oh, this is new, this is new, what a new change in our society, et cetera. And you demolish that in three or four different ways. Like, uh, just what, what do you think the, where should we start? Where does, what does the contemporary conversation get wrong about the history of gender nonconformity worldwide? Well, I mean, one of the things that gets wrong is the idea that there is no history of this, right? You're absolutely right. The whole conversation is built around kind of you know, central to it is weaponizing the idea that there is no trans history, the idea Mm. that this is a new thing, and therefore either we don't have to take it seriously because it's just a fad or a fashion, or it's a new thing and that's bad and we need to make sure we make laws to protect people from it because that's terrible. And so actually, yeah, really, really central to anti-trans arguments is this this idea that it's new um, and that therefore is incredibly damaging. And so really one of the main reasons I wanted to write this book was to get the conversation started about how this is very, very far from new. But I suppose what I also wanted to do was to open up the conversation about what different kinds of gender nonconformity and trans experience we might find in the past. Because um, I think, you know, there's a, there's a few little trans history stories that get wheeled out over and over and over again. And they're the, they're the stories about people who have really clear binary gender identities who have really medicalized stories, really kind of um, classic canonical trans narrative stories of having known since they were three years old and then they transition and then they conform perfectly to gender stereotypes. Um, And that misses out so much interesting, messy, fascinating stuff that people have been doing with gender across the world throughout history um, that it seemed a real shame not to tell those stories, partly because they're cool, um, but also partly because if we keep just telling a really, really narrow subset of trans histories, then we limit the ways in which people can imagine the possibilities of what we could do with gender now. We tell people, okay, well, the only thing that there's historical precedent for is this very, very narrow way of being trans. And actually, the truth is so, so much more complicated than that. Yeah. I mean, you have some stories in your book that are the more the the story that we might imagine, uh, you know, as our first thought idea of a trans historical. Oh, here's a person who was, uh, you know, assigned one gender at birth and then they uh, they they uh, went to war as a man or whatever, that sort of story um, and then lived uh, that way the rest rest of their lives, et cetera, et cetera, um, uh, under a sort of gender ideology that we would recognize as similar to our own. But you also talk about about people who are gender nonconforming in cultures that had very different ideas of gender than, than we do, or at least differing ones. Am I right? Yeah, absolutely. It was really, really important to me to write this as a global history. Um, yeah. Because it's a really effective way of showing that 
the way we have of thinking about gender now in contemporary Western culture is a recent phenomenon and a really globe, you know, a really kind of um, locally specific phenomenon. Actually, it's not the default way of thinking about gender. It's not the traditional way of thinking about gender that then people are deviating from. It's a recent social construct um, and a very Western, a very local social construct. Um, just because you know we live in a world um, in which we take Western constructs as the default so often doesn't mean that that is the right way or the only way or even the most common way to think about gender. Yeah. Um, so yeah, so instead, um, before we were trans, as you know, is a history um, of different ways of thinking about gender and ways of experiencing gender um, in multiple cultures across the world, while also showing that actually in Western Europe and North America, there's still a lot more gendered complexity in the past there as well um, than we might expect. Yeah, and you also, before we get into some of these stories, um, you also, I feel, are, are constantly trying to correct a mistake that's often made even by folks who are you know, sympathetic to trans history and are looking for those histories. When they go back and look at histories from other cultures, there's a common error made. Can you just tell me about that? So white trans people, and I say this as a white trans person, do this so often where we're looking for kind of um, easy ways to prove the validity of our own genders. Um, and so we kind of seize upon these experiences from cultures that aren't our own. And we look at them through a Western lens um, and very, very rarely on their own cultural terms. Um, and we also tend to do this thing where, you know, we say, okay, my gender is valid because look at India, they have the hijra. Um, and hijra did not ask to be kind of instrumentalized for the cause of proving <laughs> the validity of white people's genders. You know, that's not, yeah. that's not what those people are for. But, um, and it's really troubling to me when there's this kind of romanticizing, fetishizing um, approach to genders from non-Western cultures that takes no time to understand them on their own terms. And crucially, that takes no time to actually understand what those people might need, how we can give back rather than just taking by using them and then discarding them when we've made our point. Um, and so that was something that I was really keen to try not to do throughout the book um, and hopefully succeeded. And it feels like a missed opportunity to actually understand more about the world and about gender. If you are going, looking at someone else's experience, either elsewhere in the world or historically and saying, well, what I want to get out of this is that it's going to prove something about me and my specific experience. You're going in with a real idea about it rather than saying, hey, how, what might this, if I really understand what this means to the person I'm talking about in the cultural context that they're in, what might I learn about gender that I have no idea about in my current limited frame of reference where I sit here in 2023? Yeah, absolutely. Going, there's a big, big difference, isn't there, between going in with a goal in mind to get something out of it and going in um, with an open mind as to what that interaction might reveal and how that might change the way that you might think. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, let's talk about some of these stories. Do you, I, I hate to ask you this way, but do you have a favorite that you enjoy uh, uh, telling and starting with? Um, I guess I do have a favorite. Um, I, lo I love many of the people I wrote about. Not all of them. Some, some of them, as we might go on to talk about, are not actually particularly nice people. But um, <laughs> one of the people um, who I really enjoy talking about um, is a 17th century servant um, who was known sometimes as Thomas and sometimes as Thomasine Hall. Um, so they were someone who was born in the north of England, um, where I am right now, um, born in Newcastle, emigrated um, to what's now Virginia in the US, 
Um, and they come to prominence. The reason we know about them is because in 1629, they stated in a court of law, I am both man and woman, which is mm. an awesome thing to hear somebody declaring in a court of law in the 17th century. Um, yeah. And what it, what it turns out they meant by that is they lived sometimes as a man, sometimes as a woman, sometimes as what they understood as both, and they had an intersex body. And so um, the reason uh. I tell their story in the book is to talk about the intersections between intersex histories and trans histories um, and how we might look at that in a kind of ethical way. Um, but um, the other reason I love telling their story, there's two reasons, um, other than their kind of incredible defiance in that courtroom. Um, one of the reasons I love telling their story is when you say this person had an intersex body, lots of people want to know exactly what that body was like. Now, even if I knew, I wouldn't necessarily want to tell you out of respect for um, the privacy of that individual. But actually, I don't know. And I don't know because the manuscript that tells us about that trial is damaged in precisely the place that would tell us what their body was like. <laughs> There's like, what, just like a little ink blot or like a, a little singe? There's literally like a hole in it. There's literally a hole in it. <laughs> like it's like it's a page we found in a video game, like we're playing Mist or something, and there's just oh, the one part that has the secret code is is burned away. <laughs> it's absolutely incredible. It's like a real kind of piece of trans resistance in the archive, which I absolutely <laughs> love. Um, That's so funny. <laughs> it's so frustrating if you are a prurient uh, his historian who's just like dying to know about somebody's genitals in the past. Oh, the one spot. Uh, so, so yeah, funny. Uh, wh wh uh, why was this person in court to begin with? They were in court because of fornication. Um, so oh. they'd been sleeping with someone who we only know as Great Bess. Um, we don't know anything about Bess. Um, she was great though, apparently. Um, great and, Bess. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, so they'd been sleeping together. Um, and then as part of that fornication trial, it quickly became apparent that people weren't sure exactly what kind of sex they might have had. Um, and so then the focus very quickly became, um, okay, what is this person's actual gender? Um, and about a third of the town weighed in with their opinions on what was going on with this person's body. In the end, and this is the other reason I love this story, the court concluded, all right, you know what? You say you're both man and woman. Actually, we think you're right. And your sentence is, to wear a mixture of men's and women's clothing for the rest of your life so that wow. everyone knows you're both man and woman. Wow. <laughs> Wait, really? That was, the, that was a sentence that a court could hand down? Genuinely, yeah. So it was, they had to um, wear men's clothing, um, but with a female-coded headdress um, and a female-coded kind of apron um, to mark them out. And this is it's really interesting thinking about this, isn't it? Because in some ways, like if you're a modern non-binary person, for many of us, like that's kind of a cool sentence. That's like, okay, you must express <laughs> yeah. your gender. Um, yeah. <laughs> and, you know, for so in some ways, presumably that was a bit affirming for Thomas or Thomasine. In other ways, what it does is it locks down their fluidity because what they'd actually yeah. been doing was living sometimes as a man, sometimes as a woman, kind of chopping uh. and changing how they wanted to be on any particular day. But this was saying, no, you're going to be static. You're not going to be confusing to us anymore. And this is a time at which men and women's dress was obviously very, very different. And so everybody was dressed almost, I would guess, almost in close to a gender uniform. And so this would mark this person out as like, this is the town weirdo. 
right? Like we are, everybody knows this person can no longer go back or maybe maybe they were worried about being deceived and now they can no longer deceive us, that, that sort of thing. Yeah, absolutely. Um, that's exactly right about the way that clothes were understood in that period. And the other thing with clothes in um, early modern Western culture is that they were they were seen as something that not only reflected, but also kind of shaped who you were underneath. So like, that's why they get so scared about things like um, cross-dressing on the stage, um, because right. people are actually potentially going to be changing who they are underneath if they wear the clothes that are associated with a different gender. So um, this was also a way of kind of saying, okay, you say you're both man and woman, we're going to make sure that's true. You can't be a man by wearing men's clothes. You can't be a woman by wearing women's clothes. You've got to be yeah. both, and that's what your clothes are doing. Uh, but I would have to imagine that if there was one, we have this one record of this one person in court in Virginia, you said in the 17th century. Yeah. Uh, uh, we must imagine that there were perhaps more people in North America, uh, in the colonies living the, you know, with, with this sort of gender expression or identity. What does this story tell us about, you know, gender more widely at the time? It tells us that people have the capacity to understand someone as both man and woman. And I think that's mm. really significant because, you know, we, like we said at the start of this, we live in this culture now where the narrative is, the standard narrative is, this is a new way of thinking. We've got to overturn our old ways of thinking about gender in order to get our heads around these weird non-binary people. Actually, all we're doing is going back to ways of thinking that we've lost. So in the 17th century, it made perfect sense for people to be like, okay, this person's both man and woman. We'll get them to dress like that then. Um, and what that shows us then is it kind of unlocks a new perspective on the way that people across the board in the North American colonies and also in um, the British Isles where they'd come from, people across the board had the capacity to think like that. They had a way more complex understanding of gender than I think we normally give them credit for. Um, so that one little court judgment shows us what could have been going on in a heck of a lot more people's heads, I think. Yeah. Uh, and you also write about with all of these cases, the danger of us, like we immediately think, okay, I know all the gender identities in my life, right? Uh, the, that friends of mine have, or that I've encountered or that I've read about on the internet here in, here in, in the U S in 2023, which one of those was Thomasine slash Thomas, right? And you write a lot about the danger of that sort of thinking. How, how, does, how do you think about this person, uh, uh, just to get us started in that piece of it? I've got to think about Thomasine, as, or Thomas, as both man and woman, because that is the only record I have of the words that they used. Um, mm. and this is quite tricky, because on the one hand, this line of argument of saying, you've got to talk about people on their own terms, that can so kind of segue very quickly into saying, well, so you're right, there were no trans people in the past. Um, and in a kind of absolute self-definition sense, there have only been trans people as long as people have been saying, I am a trans person. Um, yeah. But what I kind of argue in the book is I think there's a really, really important distinction to make between trans people and trans history. Mm. So I would say... Thomas or Thomasine, they were not a trans person because that's not what they said about themselves. And I think an ethical way of looking at any other human being, whether they're dead, whether they're alive, whether I know them, whether I don't, an ethical way of looking at them has got to start with accepting the way that they understand themselves and seeing them on their own terms rather than imposing mine. And that felt really, really important. Um, so Thomas or Thomasine was not a trans person. 
But I do think their story is trans history. Because if we think about trans history as history that shows us that gender has never been straightforwardly tied to the body or straightforwardly binary or straightforwardly rigid or something that you can't play with, um, then that enables us to see, okay, well, if that's always been the case, then of course it stands to reason that we can still think about gender in that flexible, playful, messy way now. And that distinction between saying these weren't trans people, but this is trans history feels like one that can allow us to navigate that really tricky um, line between saying there weren't any trans people in the past and saying there has always been gender nonconformity and there have always been people messing with gender. I find that really beautiful. And I, first of all, I love the really thoughtful way that these are difficult issues. And uh, I feel that the, the way you explain that was so thoughtful, but also understandable to me, very clear. It gives me the language I need to understand it. I also think it, it helps me understand the title of the book before, before we were trans, because transness as a word didn't exist before uh, at this time, right? But there's still a we that goes back, that extends backwards. Does that, is that, do I have something right there? That's exactly where the title came from. Yeah, it took a long, long time to come up with it. I think my partner came up with it in the end. Um, but it was exactly what I wanted to communicate was there is a continuity, not of terminology, but a continuity of community. Um, and actually yeah. a really important kind of strand of the book is sort of reckoning with the fact that we inevitably have kind of emotional connections to this history and that marginalized people in particular, people like trans people who've been told that we don't have history and that we don't have community and there aren't many of us and we may grow up, grow up without knowing anyone like us, um, that looking to history for a sense of community is really important. And so it is really crucial not to just be like, well, there were no people like you in the past because they didn't use the same words as you. That to me feels like abandoning people in the present who really need this history as a sense of community. Yeah. As a Factually listener, you're probably aware of my unwavering commitment to online privacy. Well, Delete Me has been an indispensable tool for me for many years, long before they even started advertising on this show. I've been using their wonderful service. In today's digital landscape, you know, it's alarmingly easy for data brokers to traffic your personal information online. In fact, I would almost guarantee that your personal information is on multiple data broker sites on the internet right now. It's not even the dark web, it's the regular web. These data brokers may be peddling and exchanging your name, phone number, and home address all without your knowledge. And trying to locate and remove all this data yourself can feel like an impossible task because there can be dozens of these sites. But that is what Delete Me does for you. Delete Me's team of experts scours the depths and the breadth of the internet to locate and remove your personal data. Within just seven days, you'll receive a comprehensive report detailing their findings and what they have removed. It can be hard to believe but approximately 41% of Americans find themselves vulnerable to various forms of online harassment, and this means doxing, scams, and even identity theft, all of which pose significant threats to your financial security and could potentially derail career opportunities. I mean, I used to get weird people calling my cell phone all hours of the day or night until I signed up for Delete Me and it cut it right out. So if you wanna safeguard yourself like that and live with the peace of mind that experts are hunting down and removing your personal information every three months, then check out Delete Me. Go to joindeleteme.com slash Adam and get 20% off for all consumer plans with the code Adam. That's joindeleteme.com slash Adam. 
Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows VR training platforms like ForgeFX help students master their skills. There's a big learning curve with welding. Virtual reality simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. So uh, is there a person in your book to, let's do another story. Is there a person who, and forgive me, it's been a few months since I've read it, so I don't remember every star off the top of my head. Is there one that does a little bit more closely resemble what we would see today as a, uh, we would say today is a trans person or or no? Or are they all more interesting, complex stories than that? Even well, though none of them use that word. Yeah, yeah, um, The answer is a kind of yes and no to that. I mean, so there are, you know, there are some um, 20th century stories um, of people, you know, who access medical transition and therefore do resemble our um, contemporary ideas of being a trans person a, a bit more. But I talk about those people specifically because even if they resemble our own ideas of being a trans person, they often didn't define themselves in that way. You know, some of them were like, actually, I'm intersex because they have ah. this different understanding of transness to what we do now. Um, but I suppose I really, I wrote this book because I wanted a space to tell the stories of the people who make, who when you tell their stories, people go, oh, well, that's not trans history. That's just right. something else. Yeah, that's not right. trans history. That's just gay people or that's just gender nonconforming fashion. Well, that's just the history of the theatre. Um, and I wanted to say, it is those things, but it's also trans history because of what it tells us about the um, kind of malleability, the um, playableness with, of gender. Yeah, there was one story in the book where, and please fill me in on the details, but um, it's a historical figure who, there was a, there was a contemporary dispute about whether this person is part of trans history or lesbian history. Do I have that right? And uh, do you mind talking about it a little bit, even though I know it, it's maybe still, there's still some heated thoughts about this particular story. Yeah, and well, you know, that's why it's worth talking about, isn't it? Um, so I think who you're talking about is Anne Lister, um, who, those mm. who've seen Gentleman Jack, um, either on the BBC in the UK or on HBO um, in North America, um, will know Anne Lister. Anne Lister was a um, wealthy 18th century landowner from, um, West Yorkshire in the UK, very close to where I am now, um, who um, has been treated for many, many years as part of lesbian history because um, the, uh, they lived as a woman and um, had relationships with other women and wrote a diary and code, which was only cracked um, kind of hundreds of um, hundreds or so years after, more than hundred years um, after their death, um, which revealed um, these affairs with women and which showed really clear kind of self consciousness of I am someone who loves women and so. Um, a lot of lesbians, you know, really rightly and understandably seized on this of saying, this is someone with a lesbian identity, right? This is someone who um, is really conscious of, I am the sort of person who is attracted to women, which um, we hadn't kind of got very much evidence of people in their own words thinking like that in the 18th century before. So that's really cool and interesting. And also had an interesting and complicated relationship with gender and gender nonconformity. So they dressed in a way that was seen as masculine and Sometimes their partners found this really attractive and sometimes they didn't. Um, mm. They were given men's names by their lovers sometimes. And they wrote in their diary, and I think this is really interesting, um, they wrote in their diary about not wanting to be seen as a woman by their lovers, about um, it being uncomfortable when their lovers did certain things sexually because then it made, the, made it seem like those lovers saw them too much as a woman. So we have someone who is incredibly important to lesbian history 
and also who tells us some quite interesting stuff, I think, about the history of gender and perhaps about the relationship between gender and sexuality. Um, and the reason I wanted to write about that in the book was partly because you know, it's a neat example of someone who um, kind of speaks to both of these marginalized groups who don't have much historical representation today. Um, but also because that really came to a head when a um, permanent plaque was erected at the um, church in York, um, in the north of England, where Anne married their long-term partner, Anne Walker. Um, and I say married, you know, advisedly. Um, it was um, a union that was not kind of legally sanctioned as a marriage, but was one that the two of them saw as a marriage um, in, in 1834, um, arguably the UK's first lesbian wedding. <laughs> um, and so a plaque was er erected there. And there was a lot of wrangling over whether the wording should describe Anne as gender nonconforming, um, which was not a word that Anne used, but was kind of, you know, a description of their behavior, or whether it should say lesbian, which also wasn't a word that Anne used. Um, and it ended up with the plaque originally saying gender nonconforming. And then, um, after a lot of backlash from lesbians who felt unrepresented, um, being recast to say lesbian. Um, and what, what this feels like to me is a real missed opportunity to re recognize that Anne Lister's story is a story that speaks equally to trans people and to lesbians. Um, and mm. the emotional connection to history doesn't have to be this zero-sum game where we're going, no, this person's a lesbian, no, this person's trans. But actually, if we think about it in terms of kind of feeling a sense of community with people in history, in our real lives today, we can belong to lots and lots of different communities. Um, yeah. We don't sort of say you can only be one thing. And so it stands to reason that people in the past can also belong and speak to lots of different communities. But because, partly because we live in a world um, where the political conversation is manufactured to construct divisions between different sectors of LGBTQ communities, I think. Yeah. Um, and partly also because we live in a world um, you know, in contemporary Western culture, where we've drawn this really strict dividing line between gender and sexuality, which is actually really recent, um, that leads people to think, oh, well, this person's got to be one or the other. Um, and the reason I wanted to write about all these messy histories in Before We Were Trans was in part to say, no person is one or the other. And just because these stories are trans history doesn't mean they aren't also simultaneously other kinds of history at the same time. Yeah, I, I mean, it seems like, it's going back to a little bit of the same era that we were talking about also, where there's this effort to ask, well, what was this person really according to our rubric as though our current rubric that we've all semi agreed upon, there's this type of person, that type of person, that type of person, which bucket, which one of our buckets do we put them in without realizing, hold on a second, our buckets, we just came up with these buckets a little while ago and 50 years from now, we might have different buckets and Rather than compete, first of all, why do we need to compete? But second of all, rather than putting them in one of our buckets, what if we just take what Ann Lister said as, you know, it's uh, this is what we know. We know about them, what they said about themselves and the evidence that we have. And there's plenty to learn about from that. Right. And, and take take her own words seriously. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, and maybe. By looking at the past and seeing they have different buckets, we might think our buckets even the right thing. You know, maybe we should be having like paddling pools 
um, or yeah. um, some other kind of more capacious receptacle that can contain more of ourselves. Maybe yes. looking at the past might inspire us to do that. Uh, well, and we in the present, our our own, uh, everyone's own conception is is a little bit messy as well, right? Of themselves, like I've I have many many queer and gender nonconforming friends. Very few of them are in very narrow buckets themselves. They they all they tend to have when you talk to them a messy story of their own that is very interesting, and we can like maybe extend that same grace to people in the past. Yeah, absolutely. If you ask any trans person today. It's very, very rare that we had the classical trans narrative of I knew when I was three and I conformed perfectly to all the gender stereotypes and I never had a moment of doubt. And now that I've transitioned one way forever permanently, I will be conforming to all the stereotypes of my new gender. And my gender is also just my gender and definitely doesn't have anything to do with my sexuality or my relationship with clothing. And we don't make those demands of cis people. You know, we don't demand that their gender can be perfectly separated from the way they feel about sex or clothes or roles in society or anything else. But we make those demands of trans people, like in order to be really trans, you have to be sure it's just about gender and not about any other aspect of yourself. And no human being is like that. Like you say, we're all messier than that. Yeah. When you tell that story of Ann Lister in the book, I detected like a little bit of pain on, on your part that the, that, that the story of the dispute in contemporary society, you know, w was a little bit distressing to you. I was, I was wondering if you could talk about why that is. Yeah, you're not wrong. Um, so I was a member of the committee that put together that initial plaque. Um, and the, so the one that said gender nonconforming. Um, and I was working with various other kind of representatives of um, queer groups within York. Um, and what we didn't really realize at the time was that the consultation we did about the wording, well, didn't ne really necessarily reach the right people for like a variety of kind of locally specific reasons. And it also didn't last long enough because there was one of the community groups that kind of was keen to work to a specific timeline. I'm not going to throw them under the bus by saying who it was, but um, there was one group that, um, yeah, resulted in it being a bit more rushed than it needed to be. Um, and what that meant was we ended up not really anticipating the backlash that was going to come. And some of that backlash was really transphobic and involved, you know, threats of violence, et cetera. Um, some of that backlash was not transphobic. It was just lesbians who felt really hurt. Um, and that in a way was harder to deal with because, um, yeah, it wasn't, it wasn't what we'd wanted to do to hurt people. Um, and it's taken, th this happened in, was it 2017 or 2018? A little while ago anyway. Um, and I'd been invited so many times since that happened to speak about it or to be on Analyster panels or to write blog posts about it or to write articles about it. And I turned them all down because I wasn't ready um, after mm. going through the real onslaught of online hate that that episode um, precipitated. And it was only when it came to writing that this book that I thought, okay, I've finally sort of got the the distance I need from it, and also I've got the space to tell this in my own words and on my own terms, and to talk about what I think went wrong, but also the fact that I don't think the solution that um, the groups who worked on it afterwards came to, where it just says lesbian instead, I don't think that that's a great thing either, either for Anne or for 
whole groups of diverse queer people today. Um, I think it homogenizes and flattens someone who was actually really complex and interesting and whose complexity we could embrace more than we have. Yeah. I, I, what I find fascinating about this is how important this history is to so many people that, that it really, people got so passionate about it occasionally, as you say, hateful about it, if it didn't go the way that they wanted. Um, but yeah, it's, I don't know. It's just so it's interesting when it, history is so present in people's minds and when it becomes a, a, a battlefield that makes you think about what history is for and who it's for. I think it becomes particularly kind of emotionally fraught for people who don't get that much representation in history in a way. Yes. So, like if, you know, if you are any shade of queer or, you know, anything, if you are from any marginalized group, essentially, um, it's very rare that you get representation in mainstream historical narratives or that you'll be taught histories that you recognize um, as being about people who relate to you at school. Um, and so when you do find someone, you really, really cling to them. Um, and we end up kind of fighting over them as if they're really kind of scarce resources because we just haven't been given, it feels like, enough to go around. Um, and this is why I think it's so important to reframe the way we think about it and to think instead of this person belongs to me and only me and we have to claim them um, in this kind of capitalist way. Um, yeah. To think instead, <laughs> you know, okay, can we, um, how can we think about history as a source of community and how can we think about um being multiple groups of people being in community and in solidarity with these people from history without it taking away from other groups of people feeling the same thing yeah i mean that history is a renewable resource that everybody right. can <laughs> it, you never run out of uh of people being able to see themselves in a historical figure and and get knowledge and understanding from it so my god this conversation is incredible i cannot wait to keep talking to you after the break we'll be right back with more kit ham okay we're back with kit ham um you've been telling us these incredible stories about uh, gender nonconforming people of all types uh, in the past, but we mostly told story. We told a story in Virginia, one in the UK. Uh, I'd love to get into some of the stories you tell about folks in other parts of the world throughout history. Do you have a favorite uh, from all of the rest of of the globe, from the whole rest of the world? Um, yeah, one of my favorites is um, the story that I open the first chapter after the introduction with, um, which is the monarch of Ndongo in what's now Angola, um, whose name was Njinga Mbande. Um, and I say monarch very advisedly, because um, Njinga was assigned female at birth, but when they reigned, they reigned as king, not as queen. Um, I wanted to tell that story because I wanted to think about the fact that probably the most common way that trans history gets dismissed is when people look at a story and they say, well, that's not trans history. That's just a woman making her way in a patriarchal society. So she had to dress up as a man in order to achieve the things she wanted to achieve. Right. Doubtless, those stories and those experiences exist in lots and lots of places. And Jinga's story is different, though. Um, and Many, many similar stories from similar periods and similar places are, are different because Njinga ruled as a king because the role of monarch 
was male in their society. So when you became monarch, you became king. That's what there was. Um, and to a modern Western ear, that sounds kind of regressive. That's like saying, what, there's no such thing as a ruling woman. You can't be a woman and rule at the same time. Um, but you've just got to get your head around the fact that that wasn't a repressive value um, in 17th century Ndongo. Um, and it remains not a repressive value in many, many cultures today. It's just different. It's not worse. Mm. Um, and well, How so? Because it, I'm having trouble getting out of my, my current conception in, in, you know, 2023 US. It's just different and not worse because if you, how to put it, if you don't think that one gender is automatically better than another, then it shouldn't mm. matter that someone's gendered experience changes depending on the role they're occupying. You know, mm. if you don't live in a society that says women are worse, then it shouldn't be a problem to say, well, being a woman isn't something that's compatible with this particular box or this particular role. Mm. That makes sense. I think uh, so, yeah. Um, the thing, I suppose, that also that complicates Njinga's experience, um, and this was another reason it was really interesting um, to research and to write about, um, was because... They ruled as king in part because that was the way that the role of monarch was gendered in their society. But it was also a really strategically convenient thing to do because at the time that they were ruling Ndongo, they were having to negotiate with Portuguese colonizers. And the Portuguese very much did come for a patriarchal society. They were very much going to respect a king way more than they were going to respect a queen. So it's really, really hard then to tease apart, you know, what was going on for Njinga's experience were they just ruling as king because that was the way they understood it culturally? Or was there also a bit of them that was like, well, the more I look masculine, the more I'm going to be able to negotiate effectively with these people who want to take over my country. Um, it is impossible to separate those two things. And the story of gender nonconformity um, in non-Western cultures is so often a story that's also about Western colonization. Um, but what's really important to say is that's not always a story of just, we had all these genders and then the colonization squashed them. You know, sometimes that's definitely the story, but sometimes yeah. it's also a story of we had these gendered experiences and then people resiliently and creatively shaped them differently in response to their experiences of colonization. Right. Like, oh, there's these new people on the scene and ah, I can tell they have different gender ideas than I do. And so maybe if I present myself in a way that they will understand as X, whatever it may be, then I can accomplish the thing I want to accomplish. And that's OK with me because I am blah, 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 blah. And uh, there's there's a that's a far more interesting story. Yeah, I think so. And it's also a story that gets a away from falling into the, some of the traps that even if you're trying to write anti-racist history, you might fall into where you present people of color as primarily victims. Um, mm -hmm. and don't get me wrong that like, there are a lot of stories, um, of victimhood and pain and harm in the history of gender nonconformity and its relationship to colonization. Um, particularly in North America, I've got to say, um, but there are also a lot of stories of agency and resilience. Yeah. Um, and, it's really essential to tell those stories alongside the stories of harm, I think. Yeah. 
How much do we know about Njinga's, you know, personal life in terms of how they they presented themselves? Or do we really only have the sort of like monarchical history? <laughs> we really only have the history written by white Western onlookers. Um, and this ah. is a real, it's a real challenge um, in writing yeah. a lot of these histories um, is that the um, sources that have been preserved um, are the sources from um, societies with primarily written rather than oral traditions, um, which are often the oppressor societies, the colonizer societies. Um, what that means then is you have to look at their records of how this person behaved or what this person did, and you have to sort of try and put yourself in that person's shoes and say, okay, we know they behaved like that. Why might they have been behaving like that? Um, yeah. And, um, and try and reconstruct their perspective and their terms of, um, understanding themselves kind of as best you can. Um, but it's probably, you know, people often ask me what was the biggest challenge in writing this book. Um, that is it is the, um, fact that you're so often working with sources that were written by the people who are perpetuating the harm that you're trying to write against. Yeah. Um, well, I can see how given that sort of paucity of information about like the, the details, there's, there's a lot that one can fill in one's own blanks in this story. Like if you want to see this figure as someone who said, Hey, this is a woman taking power and just sort of, uh, maintained that identity and put on the shoulder pads uh, that, you know, women put on in the 1980s here in the U.S. to be a little bit more masculine, right? Um, the, the, uh, I just got to compete with the boys, right? Uh, you, could, you could see that in this story if you wanted to, but I think what you're illuminating is there is a, a dimension of gender nonconformity that, that you can see as well. Um, that, is that, do I have that right? Absolutely, yeah. So, this is another one of those stories that um, different people can find sensitive community with. So you can understand Njinga as an incredibly defiant woman, and that's really important mm -hmm. to lots of people and lots of women in Angola today. Um, you can also understand simultaneously Njinga as a person who showed that gender was not determined by what your body was like. And that's ah. really cool and really interesting and really affirming to lots of trans people today. And instead is determined by the role that you take, the the person that you uh, act as in society or something along those lines. Yeah, exactly. So gender can be something that you do and um, not just something that has this kind of one to one causal relationship between your bodies like this. So you've got to be this. You've got to live like this. You've got to be understood as this. Um, and actually, the more you look at, um, you know, I said that we can often find these histories um, and these different ways of understanding gender um, in Western European history as well. If you look at around the same time, um, Elizabeth I in England, um, she was also being called king and prince and being understood as somewhat more male as a result of having a male-coded or masculine-coded role. Um, really? So it wasn't as absolute in England, but it was still something where gender was complicated on the basis of what role you took in society. Yeah. Yes. I love that. Just the complication of it being the, the interesting part that it's not a clear cut story as gender is not in our time as well. Yeah, exactly. And all these stories are, you know, they take, they take time and thought and feeling okay with ambiguity and discomfort 
in order to really get your head around them. And I think that's why, you know, they don't make good sound bites. Um, they don't make yeah. good kind of, um, political sticks to beat the opposition with, you know, but they are essential to tell because they reflect the reality of our own gendered experiences being complicated today as well, like we talked about before. I'm curious how uh, yourself, as a white person writing in the in the UK, uh, you know, when you're writing stories about folks from you know other cultures, other countries, uh, especially places that were that were colonized by white folks, how do you uh, try to you know get yourself out of that lens and you know write about them in a way that is uh, honors their specific experience, even though you don't you know, have, have that personal connection. It was really important for me to reflect honestly about the difficulties of doing that, um, and the limits of my own perspective and, um, the places where it felt uncomfortable or hard or sometimes impossible for me to do. So, you know, one of the, um, aspects of gendered experience that I write about, um, in the last chapter of the book is gendered experiences that are spiritual um so people can mm. understand um their gender as inherently spiritual or as a spiritual experience and not really a gendered experience you know it looks gendered to me because i have my gender glasses on from um the uk but it's not in fact gendered in the way that they understand it and it is it is really difficult for me to just sit here and say well this person became a man through a prophecy because that's not something that I kind of empathize with or understand. Um, but it's essential for me to write it on their own terms in a way that honors the fact that it's true for them, even if it doesn't make sense to me. Um, and I suppose the other thing I really wanted to do with the book was to tr try as far as I could to use it for anti-racist purposes. Um, so to not only tell these stories on their own cultural terms rather than through Western goggles where I say, oh, these people are kind of non-binary and these people are kind of trans women or whatever, didn't want to do that. Um, but also to say, well, look, if we look at, for example, the reason we think about biological sex as binary today, actually the process of us coming to think like that was a racist process, a eugenicist process. And um, mm. our constructs of how we think about biology today um, oppress some bodies more than others um, and those bodies are bodies of color and um so that also felt to me like a way of using the platform that i'd got for as much anti-racist good as i could within the context i guess yeah i'm also curious about uh, you know your uh in terms of your own your own gender identity and your own experience how does that you know how do you bring that experience to the work or what do you personally get out of it doing this history that's kind of the origin story of the book in a way because i came to understanding of my own queer identity through identification with the queer past really i didn't have wow. particularly many you know growing up i didn't have particularly many people of the same experience who i could relate to but i did know that I felt an incredibly deep sense of community um, with queer masculinity in the past. Um, and it took a long time for me to work out what that was about. You know, for a while I was like, maybe I believe in past lives and that's what this is. Um, and um, only when I discovered what transness was, did I figure out um, what was going on for me. Um, but that meant that it's always felt incredibly personal and important to me. And that's really the reason why 
the book is also about what emotional connection to history can kind of do for us, why it's okay not to be a historian who's ruthlessly objective and detached from their subject, and how actually no one is like that. Um, and if we, <laughs> yeah, even the objective historians, they're covering up that they're getting something personal out of it. They're they've okay. got some little some little hobby horse they're riding, or some little wish in their heart that they're seeing in history. Always, I, yeah, I genuinely believe that. And particularly, you know, even if even if what you're emotionally committed to is the idea that we shouldn't have emotions, you know, that in itself is is a feeling, <laughs> you know, right. Right. The people who tell us that histor- history shouldn't be political and, you know, we should leave all the statues up of people who committed awful harms in the past. You know, those people are having a lot of feelings about history, right? Yes. You can tell by the way they talk. Yes, they are. <laughs> yeah, it's inherently personal. Um, and I mean, history is also, unless you're just recounting every event that ever occurred, which is impossible, you're always telling a story. And a story always has a point and something to communicate if it's a good story. Um, it is a beginning, middle, and end. It has a character. It has a, it has a fucking story. It's a story. Yeah. There's no <laughs> – and, and uh, that means that it, it is meant to work on the emotions to some degree, right? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and actually, you know, this is what my first book was about, about how um, the medieval king Edward II got his queer reputation. Turns out it wasn't by people telling the facts. It was by people – um, trying to tell really, really good stories. Um, mm. But that's, yeah, that's another story entirely. Um, but absolutely. And what you're also deciding um, when you're crafting a historical narrative is whose narrative you're telling, right? And what you're leaving out and whose perspective you're coming at it from. Um, right. And none of that is objective, ever. Uh, well, one story to sort of round us out here that I'd love you to tell that I just thought was Honestly, the most entertaining story in the book was was what happened in uh, internment camps in World War One and the communities that formed there. I found it so fascinating. Can you tell us a brief version of that one? This is really the other origin story of the book. This is where um, the where I started thinking about these um, issues. And this is when I found out about what happened in Nokelo internment camp on the Isle of Man and subsequently in lots of other um, internment and prisoner of war camps which is that these were camps that were just for people assigned male at birth, um, but there were people who lived as women for the full four years within those camps. And what I mean by that is they used women's names, they were called by she, her pronouns, um, they dressed as women. Um, and historians have looked at this in the past and said, oh, well, they were doing this because they were playing female roles on the stage because there were theatres within these camps. Um, but it's one thing to play a female role on the stage. It's another to get off the stage and keep the dress on and keep the wig on and keep the name. Um, and this is incredibly widespread um, in any all assigned male at birth camp um, that you have within the First or Second World Wars. It's incredibly widespread um, that the kind of normal rules of society get suspended. And there's this opportunity that opens up for people to live as a gender different from the one they were assigned at birth. Um, and Given the incredibly widespread nature of it, what that tells me is probably some people were doing it for a laugh. Probably some people were doing it for theatrical purposes. Possibly, um, probably some people were doing it because it enabled them to sort of sleep with men with more impunity, for to feel sort of straight while sleeping with men. And probably some people were doing it because that was how they felt most comfortable living. And we can acknowledge all those possibilities existing simultaneously within these camps. 
And these were internment camps for during World War One for uh, on the Isle of Man. One who who was interned here on the Isle of Man. This is a really kind of um, untold scandal of British history. I think um, who they were interning were not prisoners of war. They were civilians from quote unquote enemy countries who were assigned male at birth and of military age and had been present in the UK when the war broke out. So some of these uh, people were just on holiday, and they got uh-huh. rounded up. Um, some wow. of them had had families that had been there since the 17th century. They just never kind of got citizenship. They rounded them all up and they locked them all up. And so it was a mix of, you know, German nationals, Turkish nationals, et cetera, um, who were in these camps. Um, but yeah, really important to say they were not combatants. They were civilians who were locked up. And I think what I love about this story so much is that you imagine some of these people finding some freedom in this situation of unjust imprisonment. They're being imprisoned in a time of war. They're like, why the fuck am I in here? (laughs) Right. But at the same time, for some of those people, they have the opportunity to be themselves in a way or to find a mode of expression that they did not have before in the sort of, you know, little jury rigged society that springs up inside of this camp. I, I, it's just, I, I don't know. It's just, uh, it's, it's a very beautiful image. I'm sure many things about it were not beautiful, very much so. But I, I can't help but find myself smiling when I think about it. Yeah, absolutely. And it's another one of those stories of kind of finding resilience in places that you wouldn't expect people to find resilience, right? And finding yes. agency in situations where they had so much agency stripped from them. But actually, this was an opportunity that perhaps they never would have got on the outside. Yes, it. It, it feels like this would make a good movie. <laughs> That's like I like I'm picturing the 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 sort of like coming out around Christmas time. Sort of we've got a combo. There's something for Dad with the you know with the war setting and everything. But then also Dad can go with his queer kid because there's a really wonderful little narrative of you know uh, queer resilience in this uh, in this story somehow. I would watch the heck out of that, honestly. <laughs> <laughs> I'm here in LA. Maybe I'll take a couple pitches on it. I don't know. Um, uh, what, what happened to these folks after the, you know, they left the, the camp? Mostly we don't know, um, which is incredibly tragic. So, you know, I'd love to know, I'd love to know how many of them, um, continued living in the way that they did in the camps, how many of them didn't, how they felt about that. Um, we have one account of one diarist um, who did not live as a woman in the camp, but who observed people who did. Um, and he bumped into one of them um, and he said, oh, and he didn't seem to care to be reminded of it. And that's so that's such a tantalizing thing. You know, did, was it that he was embarrassed? Was it that it was like a painful memory because he enjoyed it a lot, actually, and didn't kind of want to be reminded that he couldn't have it anymore? You know, what was mm. going on for that person? Um, but they also kind of. In a way, the only kind of silver lining of not knowing is that it forces us to think, okay, well, given that we don't know, what if none of them did continue living as women afterwards for a whole variety of reasons? Does that mean that, you know, this isn't an interesting story? Does this mean that isn't, this isn't part of trans history? And I don't think it does because we still, again, have an example of people showing that gender can have absolutely nothing to do with your body and can be fluid. It yeah. can be something that you can change. And that's still an incredibly important piece of history, even if it did only last for four years for every single one of them, you know? Yeah, maybe some of these people were like, no, that was just in the camps, man. Like that was just, I was just doing that for four years. I had a nice time, 
but you know, now I I'm back in London and uh, that's not me anymore. And even that is an interesting, you know, history of gender nonconformity, even if that's just somebody's something somebody dips into for a couple of years in their life. Yeah, exactly. And you know, really that's the future I want to work towards, right? Where people can just dip into that for a couple of years in their life and then they stop and it's no big deal. And people don't go, my God, you regretted it. You were wrong. We have to make sure you're really sure before you're allowed to do it. No, just let people play. Just let people do the things and treat it as low stakes and it'll be fine. And you know, that's kind of great. Yeah. Do you feel that, look, the, the cultural climate with all of these issues is so hostile in so many places right now, uh, both in the UK and in the US where I am. Uh, but at the same time, I feel that I've seen your book get a lot of traction. You know, I, I came across it because as I was telling you before the interview, it was just suggested to me by my, uh, you know, by, by my audiobook service I was using. I've seen it on out on the table in bookshops. You know, it, it, it seems like, uh, people are, there's an appetite for this history, despite the, uh, sometimes, you know, inimical environment. Uh, How do you feel about the way things are going in terms of our, you know, ideas about gender in this history? I've been really, really kind of overwhelmed by the fact that people really seem to have um, seized on the book and that I've had um, such so many lovely messages from trans people who felt really seen by it, who felt like their messy experience of gender wasn't something they'd seen reflected in history before. Um, It's been so lovely to hear that. Um, and I think the more people who are equipped with the knowledge that it has always been the case that we can just play around with gender and that that can be low stakes and the world doesn't implode if we do that, um, the better. Um, I think rigid categories and rigid power structures never disappear without a backlash. And I think that is what they're seeing. Um, one of the mm-hmm. reasons for this backlash is that male and female have never been just identity categories. They've always been power categories. Um, and yeah. people are really, really afraid of the dissolution of those power categories. Um, but it will come, it will change. Um, and the fact that so many people have felt seen by this book, um, gives me a bit of hope around that as well. Well, and what your book makes me think about is that, you know, throughout history around the world, people's ideas of gender were very different than the ones we had that we have today, that they were not so rigid in so many other places. And that makes me realize, oh, the rigidity and the backlash that I've grown up with is not uh, mandatory. It's not part of human life. It is just something that's happening right here and now. And so there's the opportunity to have a more open and, and inclusive view that that a lot of a lot of us are working to build uh, and we can have it. it very much reminds me of uh, the book Dawn of Humanity by David Graeber and David Wengro that we've talked about on the show before. That was a work of anthropology about how humanity had so many different other forms of government than we have right now. So many different other ways of understanding, you know, pa- social relations and hierarchy and power relations that it, it increases your. Uh, uh, your your understanding of what possibility is, and your book did the same thing for me, and I think it's it's really beautiful. And um, thank you so much for coming on the show to talk to us about it. Thank you so much. That's totally wonderful to hear, and I've really enjoyed this. Thank you. Well, the book again is called Before We Were Trans. Uh, folks can pick it up at our special bookshop, factuallypod.com/books. Uh, where else can people find it, Kit, or where can they find your work? Um. 
have a look at my website, kitheyam.com. I am also on, um, not to dead name anything in this conversation, but Twitter. Um, and- <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's the first time I've heard that referred to as a dead name, and it's very funny to me. Please be respectful of Elon. Let's not dead name his service, okay? That's not kind to him. <laughs> um, he wouldn't be kind to me if he met me so I think, you know, quid pro quo um, I'm on that social media site for as long as it exists um, find me there if you like <laughs> Great, wonderful under under the username Kit Hayam, I assume Absolutely, and Instagram too yeah. Okay, great, thank you so much for being here Kit, it's been wonderful <laughs> Thanks so much for having me My God, thank you once again to Kit for coming on the show If you want to pick up a copy of their incredible book that I cannot recommend highly enough head to factuallypod.com slash books. I know you're going to love it. If you want to support this show, you can do so on Patreon. Head to patreon.com slash Adam Conover. Five bucks a month gets you every episode of this podcast ad-free. For 15 bucks a month, I will read your name at the end of this podcast and put it in the credits of all of my video monologues. This week, I want to thank Brennan Peterman, Ultra Czar, Busy B, Josh Davies, Lois Bell, and Amet A. Thank you so much for your support of the show. Of course, I always want to thank our producers, Tony Wilson and Sam Roudman, everybody here at HeadGum for making this show possible. You can find me online at adamconover.net. You can also find my tour dates there. Once again, I'm going to Arlington, Virginia, Nashville, Atlanta, D.C., New York, Philadelphia, Portland, Maine. I think I forgot a few, so head to adamconover.net to see all my tickets and tour dates. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll see you next time on Factually. That was a HeadGum Podcast.